Um, Hello, this is Zach Berger with my podcast, Shalom's Bias, about things I'm interested in. This podcast, like all other previous episodes, is sponsored by my book, Making Sense of Medicine, Bridging Doctors' Guidelines and Patient Preferences. But we're not here to talk about me today. We are here to uh, discuss the very interesting work in person or telephonically with Adia Benton, who's an assistant professor of anthropology and African studies at Northwestern and a visiting professor at Harvard Medical School. Thanks so much for talking today. Yeah. Um, so your 2015 book called HIV Exceptionalism, Development Through Disease in Sierra Leone was really interesting for many reasons, but primarily for me because it talks about systemic issues that are familiar to me from my work in Baltimore, in the U.S., obviously, in a system where I don't, you know, I don't know anything about, um, and I know more, obviously, after, after reading the book, but... Can you tell me how, if you don't mind, how uh, you got involved in, in Sierra Leone as a, as a place of research and of, as a place of personal involvement? Um, yeah, so I actually um, had no job and was looking for something um, in my field as a consultant. And so I um, applied for several things, and I, but I had been particularly interested in working in uh, Guinea, Liberia, or Sierra Leone. Um, it's sort of in the aftermath of, or at least in the immediate aftermath of Liberia and Sierra Leone's wars. <clears throat> and so I actually went there uh, to work on this project related to um, sexual violence against Liberian women refugees. And so I began working there um, in 2003. And then when I was thinking about what my PhD project would be, I decided to go back um, to Sierra Leone to kind of start thinking about some of the implications of war um, and on health systems. But the HIV piece came um, largely because I was planning to do a project in Nigeria and decided that it was um, it would make more sense to do it in Sierra Leone since I had the most recent experience there. And and part of what makes the book interesting, I mean, from a this is what I what I think is is common, if, if I'm not incorrect, to books about to books in um, ethnography and anthropology, where where the researcher often writes as well as a person, you know, with their own personal experiences. So it was interesting to write to read about how you became used to life there um, and and your personal experiences. Um, how tell me about the history of the term. As far as you understand, HIV exceptionalism. How 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 old is that term? Is that so? Actually, you know, it's funny. I was thinking it's it's probably I'd say it start people started using it in the '90s, in the early '90s, um, but usually to talk about um, whether um, HIV was exceptional in a particular way for providing care, for thinking about legal ramifications of stigma, for workplace, you know, things related to the workplace. Um, and, and it was critiqued by early, by public health professionals who were wondering if, if HIV was indeed unique and requiring um, an exceptional response. Um, but, then, <laughs> but then it became clear, or at least um, institutions that were charged with addressing AIDS issues became, I think, pretty convinced that it was indeed unique um, in the sense that it had all of these um, different kinds of ramifications, political ones, ethical ones, legal ones. Um, and so um, I think it was just one of the first and early cases of a kind of multi multidisciplinary acceptance 
HIV posed a unique problem. It was killing a lot of people, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, good care that could prolong life, um, you know, in the, in the early 90s. And so, you know, it, it became this sort of, I think, a mark of, of shame for the medical and scientific <laughs> profession. Right. 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 And also probably a, ma- a mark of, uh, framed another way, became a mark of compassion. Like if you, if you saw right. systematic disparities, uh, now acknowledging the toll that HIV did cause, is causing, is a way to acknowledge those things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and so, so it seems like, so it seems like in, in, in your book, the point is not that HIV exceptionalism is a bad thing. It's just to describe how that plays out in justifying expenditures and priorities within a health system. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's fair. Um, because, you know, for people who actually have it, I think there is this, you know, this history, um, people who are living through having to, you know, still kind of play with med- medications and um, adjusting to them. I think there's there's still a kind of, you know, um, exceptional piece to it, right? But yes, it, it's definitely, it's not like, is it good or bad, but rather what it does to health systems, particularly in a place like Sierra Leone, where um, health systems weren't built after the war, weren't built back better, they or, or something, right? You know, they were they were built up around donor interests and and built up around, um, I guess, accepted norms for what constitutes a good public health approach to things, right? Um, so I think that's that's definitely what I'm getting at. Yeah, and has, has public health changed in general as an enterprise or as an organizational, as a organizational, as a something pursued by organizations in in the post HIV age? Like when someone sets out to design public health systems, has has HIV and the status of HIV influenced how that's done? That's a really good question. I, I so I'm you know right now I'm actually working on this uh, or a couple of books. Um, I don't recommend doing that. <laughs> right, I, I noticed you're, you're doing you're doing two at once. Does that mean what you're on the right hand and the left hand, or is that right? In the morning, one in the morning, one in the evening. I don't know what I'm doing. Right, <laughs> that's good. Me too. That's good. Some, day, some days it feels like I'm I'm just sort of writing the same book twice. Uh-huh. But um, the but one of the things I'm trying to deal with is is I guess the bigger question of what is global health and what has it become. You know, it, it's definitely. Uh, uh, a child of tropical medicine and international health, um, it, it, but you know, it, but it's it's such an expand, it's a growing and expansive field, and so it, you know, now it includes more explicitly things like engineering and business and social innovation and entrepreneurship and all of these things that were I think less explicitly um, addressed in earlier forms, and so um, what does that do to health? What does it do to public health? I think is a is a really important question because I think um, I'm, I'm still working through it. I think there are accepted ways to do global health that don't always look like public health. Um, <laughs> it doesn't always look like a you know a, a robust system. Mm-hmm. And so I think to some extent HIV affected that because there you know HIV was also ex- an, HIV was a, an opportunity to experiment. With um, with a lot of things, one of which was how to actually integrate care, primary care, um, the care into prevention, right, in a very substantive way. Um, it was an opportunity 
um, that was, I think, not really fully realized, but an opportunity to improve laboratory capacity, right, to improve diagnostic capacity, all of those things within public health systems. It was an opportunity to build surveillance. It was an opportunity to build systems, but not fruit, it was not a, an opportunity that every country could take, right, or every region or, or however you choose to think of the various governing systems um, for public health. Um, and so, and a lot of that, again, is donor interest, but also how we learn public health for international settings. So one of the things I'm doing in, in this book that I'm writing about surgery is how I learned public health as a public health student, how I learned international health. I learned about it as subdivided into, okay, you have your infectious diseases, you have your maternal and child health stuff, and then you have this other stuff. Right. Right? And so right. we would build systems around those issues, but we weren't building comprehensive systems. Or we would say, oh, we're doing primary care, and primary care is mostly prevention, you know, but certain kinds of treatments were left off the table, mm-hmm. right? So we don't see a lot of cancer wards in, in sub-Saharan Africa that are viable and, and helpful and useful and all of those things. We don't see a lot of um, cardiology units, <laughs> you know, that even though people clearly have heart disease or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that are very much linked to the conditions of, of the places um, where people get sick, right? So tropical medicine, there are certain kinds of cardiomyopathy that need to be addressed. Um, so, so, I mean, that's the sort of divergent way to just talk about this, but it, it's some way that I'm, I'm trying to deal with, you know, like the ideologies informing kind of global health practice. Oh, so, so, so that's an interesting point. So, so let's say the, the lack of, um, of cardiology divisions or, or cancer wards or the relative lack, is that due to the, the foundation of these systems on an entity-based understanding? Like you have this thing that you're, dealing, that you're treating and this thing you're treating and this thing you're treating as opposed to a comprehensive outlook? Or is it, or is it because of like a resource-deficient you know, wages of colonialism? You know, so it's, it's a little bit of both, right? Okay. Which is, so it's, it's, I think it's definite, I think one kind of precipitated the other, one led to the other, which is, oh, this is how we've accounted for what ails people in this place. Um, therefore, this is how we spend our money. And the question then becomes, or, or that at least that's framed in terms of what is cost-effective. So yes, there might be people with heart disease, but there are 10 million more with malaria or whatever. You know, So it mm-hmm. becomes like a, a sort of prioritization by disease or, or by pathology rather than under, and, and, and certain framings of, of what, heart disease means in poor places. It means, oh, it means that they're no longer traditionally doing the thing they were going, they were doing before, right? They're not eating this way, or, you know, which is, I think is a fault. These are false stories, or at least stories that make, that seem to make sense if you understand the world in a particular way. Um, tell, <laughs> wait, tell, me, tell, me, tell me one of those stories. I don't know that story. So, so sometimes so, people so are... that story, so the epidemiological transition. Right, um, right. I happen to um, have been talking to... Um, a person in, in, in my department in my, where I'm visiting right now, and you know he's leading the charge talking about non-communicable diseases in a different way. So that story has been people who are who living in advanced societies, they have heart disease, they right. have diabetes, they right. have this, they have that, right? Right. right. And so, and, and as a, a particular country uh, becomes more, quote, unquote, developed, it becomes more more susceptible to those kinds of diseases instead of, say, a, a, an infectious disease. 
probably why we're seeing fewer infectious disease physicians in places like Boston, right? Right. <laughs> um, even though people continue to have them, right? Which is, you know, whatever, that's a longer story. But but what's what that transition means is that it understands, it, it assumes that we need not look for diabetes in a place like um, um, Sierra Leone or Belize, even though Belize and places like Ghana do have high diabetes burden that actually may, that may have nothing to do with tra- natural transitions and ev- evolutionary transitions, but may have something to do with um, the subsidies on wheat or, right. <laughs> or um, these conditions all, always existed, but people are living slightly longer or, or a range of things, right? Or no one bothered to count them because we just don't know um, that they exist. Right, I remember this. The epidemiologic transition was one of the things I learned about as a graduate student, which turned right. out not to be as true as I was told it was. So, um, so I mean, I, I think, I think a lot of what you're writing about and thinking about seems to be about when you have various boxes that organize healthcare, like a, like a disease box, and people tend to migrate to that box because there, are, there are appropriated resources, mm-hmm. and and what I found very interesting about the book is how people. Sort of, re- some people recognize that, like they were HIV positive, but they didn't necessarily want to see themselves as HIV positive primarily or solely. However, given the resources, the appropriate resources devoted to HIV, that became part of their self-definition and the system's definition. Absolutely, yes. I mean, we we become we become what how we are diagnosed, right? Right, right. <laughs> it's very it's much like a framing you hear disease. People say things like, right. "Oh, I'm ADD," or "I," right? You know, um, yeah, I think that's certainly true and is that uh, i wonder if there's a good or bad, good or bad ways of doing that i mean i know in your you're 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 looking not judging I, I would assume as a researcher that's part of your um makeup but but i, I think i i think in you know in my in our american context i feel like there's a lot of that framing obviously and and there are a lot of ways in which you know my patients in baltimore are understood very much in the context of diabetes or, or chronic pain or opiate use and and understanding them defined on that basis makes it difficult to understand them as whole people and to get an integrative integrated care for them. Um, so I wonder, you know, as, as you're writing two books on, on different but over, maybe overlapping topics, have, if you were to if you were to understand exceptionalism and framing if you if you were to approach that in a maybe better better a priori way, if you were to design a system, not that this is some a task you're setting for yourself, how would how would you do it, or how would you? Does that, does that make sense at all? You mean how would I how would I imagine this more comprehensive system? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this, yeah, this, yeah. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny that you say that. I <laughs> I have thought about it, and I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but there are people working on these things. I'm just. You know, there are people who, who are very interested in health systems. There are people who are very interested in social medicine. Right, right. Um, but why aren't their perspectives mainstream? I think that is, a, is, is quite is an interesting thing. And I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I struggle with it because I know that these things, these things, these things being diseases or, or conditions are... Um, that's just how medicine and public health sees people, except public health sees populations and medicine sees individuals, supposedly, but right. often linked to this sort of popula- population-based right. idea of what people are. Right. Um, and so 
you know, is it possible for, for these disciplines to re-see, <laughs> to see right. differently? I, I think so. Um, part of the, 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 or part of the reason for critique, or one of the good things about critique is that it raises these questions in ways that allows people who are experts in this to rethink. And so I, I do see, I guess what I'm saying is that I see people who do social medicine, I see people who do sort of um, critical public health rethinking and reframing these issues. Now, what is it, what kind, what does it take to challenge orthodoxy? What does it take to challenge ideology? I think it's a bigger question. Like, what kinds of revolutions are possible? Yeah. <laughs> so, right, right. You know, it's very, I mean, very electorally relevant these days, I think. Right, yeah. So, we, you know, we see people kind of challenging the Affordable Care Act and, and kind of imagining different ways of paying for, for services. We see people um, setting up you know, community health programs that look very much like something from the 60s or 70s right. um, that talk about food and food security. And yeah. But I think, I think there are sort of many, many subversions, um, but how do you get that? To, I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't know how it's possible to realize that on a macro scale, but I do know that there are these subtle challenges occurring because of how people are opening up these systems to critique. Um, so it's it's hard for me to say what is the ideal way because we haven't seen that, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or we've seen sort of we've seen we've got glimpses, gotten glimpses um, through certain kinds of socialist forms of care, <laughs> right? We, but we haven't really, I think, really nailed it. And and I do think that there are entities addressing it, but I don't think it's hit the sort of large scale that we that we want. For people, right? Right, and part of it is I think there are, I mean, awful acute things that happen, right? So you're going to lurch from one exceptionalism to another because, I mean, HIV, obviously still a bad thing, but incidence, um, hopefully this is correct, incidence has decreased in most, in many places, most places, mm-hmm. but now, now Ebola is more of a thing than it was in the 1980s or 90s, right? So now I imagine you would, I imagine there's probably Ebola exceptionalism too, right, at this <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I gave a it was, I gave a talk. It must have been um, last fall, and uh, um, Paul Farmer, who's a colleague of mine, you know, he said, "Hey, you know, I've just been back to I think he was either in Liberia or Sierra Leone, and he said, hey, the doctor, we want to follow all these patients who've had Ebola to make sure to find out what kinds of you know what the lingering effects." Right, because they discovered that there were these neurological and ophthalmological effects. Uh-huh. And so he said he proposed this to some doctors, some of his colleagues, and they said, well, we, we think that's important, but we don't want to have Ebola exceptionalism. That's so interesting. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, this is great, but one of the problems, that, this is not Ebola exceptionalism, this is actually filling in the gaps that never got filled in in right. scientific literature. I think you'd call that healthcare, really. Like right. So. This is the clinical literature that right. failed <laughs> over the past 20 years because certainly all of these survivors were, are, are amenable to, or at least some of them had some kind of after effects that were not fully explored prior to this outbreak. Now that we have such a large number, it behooves us to know because it means that we need to think through what the pr- appropriate kind of care was. It, I mean, it wasn't even until this outbreak that care was actually a central component um, for Ebola. Like, a lot of it was about containment. 
Right. Um, That's so interesting. Right. 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 It's, it was it was about stopping transmission and, right. and and infection and not and not really what happens to the person that has Ebola. Right. Even though certainly um, doctors and nurses who encountered the disease, people with the disease, were trying to keep them alive. But I think. You know, there, it's clear from, I guess, the clinical evidence that's been published that there had the care that care was not the central, or at least a, an equally important pillar in how to address Ebola. That reminds me of, from a public policy perspective, how how frequent it was that people did not recognize that Ebola causes symptoms. Remember about the whole Chris Christie and then the nurse in Maine thing that like mm-hmm. it wasn't even. For him, it wasn't even on the t- oh, for actually Governor LePage. Sorry, that, that would be Maine. Uh, um, it wasn't even on the table for that governor or for Chris Christie in the New Jersey case that someone was asymptomatic because the very fact of having Ebola rendered you put you in a special category. So right. you, you didn't have to think about how the person felt or what you know what their life was like. It was sort of they're this vector. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Or or even just being exposed. It's sort of like a pre-Ebola state. Right. Right. Um, right. And so yeah, so there's a lot of and so I guess. One thing that I I would I would say is there are certain things that I think could be glossed as Ebola exceptionalism, but following through with patients is not one of them. Um, yeah, and it makes me think that sometimes it's good to have these organizing disease entities because otherwise you wouldn't pay. I, I think, for example, you know, I, I think the opiate epidemic as a concept is is very limiting in certain ways. You know, I think, don't get me wrong, opiates are, are cause great harm, especially in addiction. Um, uh, but I think the calling it the epidemic limits our consideration of people with chronic pain in certain ways. But the fact that this framing is so important now, I think provides opportunity to critique, right, on sort of on the flip side. Uh, so, so it because this is out there, it gives people a space to talk about these things in a way they, they might not have talked about chronic pain, you know, in this way 10 years ago. Um, so maybe that's that's part of what you're seeing in these diseases, that, that the, the effect of Ebola gives a chance to talk about care that people would have not talked about. Right, and I think that's, that's actually one of the good things. But I, I worry about things like Zika where, okay, there was no, the literature was scant because everyone was like, well, it just sort of makes people, gives people fever and, right. <laughs> and they get, they have some malaise and then they're better in a few days. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, but now, you know, now that there's this elevated risk, um, which was still quite minimal of birth defects, it, it creates all of these other sort of, ang- it sort of produces new anxieties rather than kind of, um, I don't know, and, and a desire to be certain about something. Yeah, I mean, right? I, I think I think of Tom Frieden you know, um, advocating quite eloquently from what I understand on Capitol Hill last week, I guess it was, for, <clears throat> for prevention funding, which didn't come through. But think about whether someone might advocate as well for treatment, right, of... Mm-hmm of you know adults or kids affected by Zika and how that's not being advocated for on right. such a on such a scale right which you know and I, I think that is one of the things is like how do we talk about um, disability how do we talk about all of these things in ways that are not ableist <laughs> and not right you know and right. so I think those questions are kind of being pushed as well and not as forcefully as as I'd say the aftermath of Ebola but it may it raises questions for me. So you know, what do, what if you have a child who has developmental delays? What what happens if you have an adult who is paralyzed? You know, so all of these these are are real health system questions. 
Right. They just, you know, they just are. Right. <laughs> when right. you have a vector like this, it, it changes the changes the game very very much. Um, it's also why you're seeing clustering and in, in that look clustering in, in ways that look very different from you know these other diseases. So I don't know. It'll be very interesting. Yeah. Um, so so let me let me change the topic a little bit and, and ask ask how. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've met you not in person, but through Twitter. And so, can you talk about how, what role that plays in your professional life, and 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 how whether you find it helpful? Oh, Twitter. Yeah, oh, Twitter. Right. <laughs> Honestly, that's like a crazy I mean, cousin. <laughs> it's, it's been. I have to say, it's been an interesting tool. You know, it's a good mode of engagement, finding certain kinds of communities. I I um, don't think I would have gotten pulled into the Ebola, <laughs> the Ebola, um, whatever it was, whirlwind, if it hadn't been for Twitter, I was trying to find out more about a place where I lived and worked, right? And so what ended up happening is I became more interested in, in again, in how public health was working through crisis, right. you know, how humanitarian agencies, how development agencies that I've worked for really kind of come together. And so it, it at first, I think it was actually this really interesting research, space for research, which is, you know, um, not how everyone uses it. I think journalists um, abuse it to some extent, right? They, they take people's quotes and don't even talk to people. Right. <laughs> but um, Does that happen to you? They do. They haven't done it with me. I don't oh, goodness. think. I haven't checked. Oh. <laughs> but um, one thing, I, so I, I find it really useful in that regard. And actually, a lot of the work that I've doing in my books is, is talking about this Twitter as a kind of social field where um, people really actually discuss serious matters. It's in 140 characters, but, you know, it's serious matters and even challenge internal sort of um, what are otherwise closed door conversations. Yeah, right. Right. So I think there's a little bit, there's something there in terms of not just research, but in terms of so, sociality, you know, building relationships and understanding relationships through Twitter, like, you know, learning how to, um, uh, to build a thread of thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Like, like, like people like, like GQ, or who I, whose name I don't know how to pronounce, but who are very good at like, you know, having these 27 tweet long essays, right? And I'm like, and I always sit there thinking, like, did they write them beforehand in a document? Like, how do they, like, how do they get that thread, right? Don't you wonder that, or maybe, maybe you know how to do it? I'm like, I, I don't wonder because I actually, I, I go through the every few weeks I have these like ideas, and I know, I know I have like five or six, and I know they aren't going to fit in one tweet, and right. so I actually just sort of go through, you know, like so you just do that, right? Okay, yeah. you know, it's just sort of like analysis, like, okay, let's talk about why. This 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 is what the conversation is, and let me tell you what's wrong with that conversation. <laughs> right, right. Um, so it's like what I really like about it is it allows you to build ideas that way too, right? It's essentially another form of of scholarly writing, and in, in this that it forces you to be succinct. Yeah. Right. Let me ask you something else about Twitter, and that's because in, you know in the in the medicine world, as the practitioners world, there's a lot of discussion about whether and how to divide professional and public and and personal identities in social media um and you know i i'll so i'll say that as a you know i'm out there on twitter and i'm very you know I'm, I, I try to be i'm not shy about talking in a personal way about myself but on the other and i talk about my professional and personal identities i don't follow 
I don't follow patients on Twitter, nor nor do I look for them. Um, so I, I wouldn't do that much. But so so my my comfort level is maybe higher than other people in my profession. So I wonder with you, you know, having a public and professional and perhaps personal persona as well, how how that works. And maybe can you speak to being a woman and a black woman in a space that has been called unfriendly to to people like you. That's a lot. So pick, pick, pick. Those are many questions. I know. I know. Sorry. Pick, pick whatever one you want to answer. Um, well, the, the the first, I you know, I actually, I think I've I've failed to separate the personal, the professional, um, because I do write about my my preschooler uh-huh. <laughs> a lot. Uh-huh. Um, you know, she's she's kind of interesting. I do write about her and her her insights into the world, but um, right. on on. A, I think it would be difficult as a medical professional, right? Because even if you're not seeking out your patients, your patients might seek you out. Oh, I know they. I know they see me, right? And right. That's, you know, and right, right. That so I would say that must shape something. I don't know what it. You know, there's certain things you're not going to say, and I think to some extent that you know there are certain there are certain times where I feel like interjecting where I actually refuse to because. Um, and this actually is related to your your final question about being a black woman on Twitter, because of um, how I'm positioned socially, there are certain I think threats to credibility, um, and and I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So I don't know if you've ever are you do you follow Tressy on Tressy MC on on Twitter? She actually writes. She's written um, formal you know scholarly work about. She actually uses her Twitter account as data because she has something like 20,000 followers. Oh, I think I know the name. I don't think I follow her, but I think right. I know who that is. Yeah, yeah. She, but she's quite, she's very good. She's a, she's a digital sociologist. Uh-huh. So she actually uses her Twitter account to talk, you know, because at some point women were talking about universally, like if someone wanted to take them down, they would sort of pose, the, they would actually be threatened sexually. Right. That's the first, so that's, that's sort of the first line harassment for, right. for many women. But she said, oh, that's interesting because I don't get it, allow any sexual threats. What I get are threats to my professional my, 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 prof, my professional identity. So people want to call my university and get me fired. People want to. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. Or they'll position themselves as experts, as lay experts, so right. to speak, or, or challenge, you know, every fact and every, you know, every bit of knowledge. And so I think um, where I might be particularly vulnerable is you know is, is is professionally right so the the sexual threats and the harassment won't come but the other ones that challenge like what i know and where i'm institutionally positioned and all of those things become the um the source of threat the source of danger um and so um i do i it's not to say that i don't say provocative things or i don't i don't i don't challenge uh, various kinds of orthodoxies, but I'm careful about which kinds of things that I say might spark um, those kinds of responses. So I'm, I'm, I'm at least, I'm not, I won't say I'm super careful, but I'm aware Yeah. <laughs> yeah. about how I, you know, how I present myself on, on certain kinds of professional slash personal issues. Yeah, no, that's, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, well... I could talk to you for a long time, but I'd like to, you know, give. I want to let you get back to your two books and the preschooler <laughs> and all the other things you're doing. So, um, so uh, thank you so much for for 
idea Benton for talking to me. And uh, and if you're ever in Baltimore, please uh, drop a line. Love to hear you speak. Oh, sure. That would be great. Uh, All right. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye.